0: any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results the etf store is not affiliated with etf trends and etf database or any of its affiliates etf trends and etf database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by etf trends and etf database of the value of any etf store product or service visit etfstore.com for more information
2: All right, have I got a show for you this week? Joining me will be Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends, who's making his ETF Prime debut. By the way, really excited about this. We are going to look at ETF flow so far this year, where ETF investors are putting their money. And when you just take a step back here, there are all sorts of interesting stories. Wrapped into the flow numbers. I think everything from this talk about the death of the 60-40 portfolio to this debate around inflation and whether it's real or is it transitory. Uh, Gold ETFs is a story that I think stands out. Even what's going on with ARK Invest, which I feel like it had been pretty quiet on that front until uh, yesterday's Bitcoin ETF filing. But Tom and I are going to have a uh, fun and lively conversation around what we're seeing out of flows right now, and more importantly, what it means for how investors and advisors are approaching their portfolios. Also joining me this week will be Laura Morrison, Global Head of Listings at SIBO Global Markets. And you talk about someone who has their finger on the pulse of ETFs. Laura sits in a unique position where she works with all flavors of ETF issuers. And she's really involved throughout the entire life cycle of their products. So in other words, Laura and her team, they get involved in everything from pre-launch activities for an ETF. So think index development, working with regulators, those sorts of things, to obviously an ETF's launch and listing on an exchange. Uh, They also help support uh, the growth of an ETF, areas like marketing and distribution. They, They really cover it all. And I'll just tell you, there's not much, if anything, occurring in ETFs that Laura is unaware of and can't speak to intelligently. So this should be an excellent conversation as well. A lot of questions I want to ask her about the current state of ETFs. And then to close this week, you can probably already sense the excitement in my voice. I'll be joined by Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer of Valkyrie Investments, who they are one of the firms that has a live Bitcoin ETF filing. And in fact, just last week, the SEC unfortunately delayed their decision on this filing. I'm not going to get started down that path right now, but we'll find out exactly what Stephen's hearing from the SEC, why it's taking so long, what he thinks will happen next. And I should note, Valkyrie does have another ETF filing. It's called the Innovative Balance Sheet ETF, which this would hold companies that own Bitcoin on their balance sheets and also companies just involved in the crypto ecosystem. So we'll talk about that as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with ETF Trends, Tom Leiden.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
2: Tom, I seriously have no idea how we've never had you on the podcast before. That's a huge bust on my end and one I'm really glad
3: we're rectifying now. Really excited to have you on this week. I've been really excited too, Nate. It feels like I finally made it to the prom. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, uh, I,
2: I feel like few, if any, follow ETF flows as closely as you do. And I, I also feel like you have a real knack for putting context around those flows as well. And so what I thought we might do is let's start uh, higher level, take a look at the big picture, and then we'll certainly drill into some uh, of the areas I was alluding to at the top, just in terms of what investors and advisors are doing right now. So- Broadly speaking, I, I do know we're on pace to blow away the annual ETF inflow record. Already something like, what, a half a trillion dollars in net inflows. Maybe start there and then tell us what else, uh, else you're seeing at a broader level.
3: Yeah, big picture. It's a great year for ETFs. Everyone's really excited, obviously, with equity markets hitting new highs as we speak. and Uh And... and rates at 30-year lows it's been really good for the bond market as well although different pictures since uh comparing it to 2022 where last year it was all about fixed income uh more than half of the money went into fixed income etfs and this year so far it's barely 20 percent going into fixed income really strong on the equity side both domestic and international and you touched a little bit on uh, commodities earlier. It's funny, it, it commodities are actually putting up negative numbers, but as you point out in gold, that may have a lot to do with some of the big gold ETFs seeing some redemptions earlier this year. So a, a lot of good things uh, on the docket, but as you point out, Markets also have some opportunities and challenges as well, and I'm looking forward to digging into that with you today.
2: Well, yeah, and let's do that. And I think on the equity side, the picture there is pretty clear. I mean, we've, we've been in a strong market since the uh, the, the March 2020 low. Uh, I, I don't think there's a whole lot under the hood. We know there was a little bit of this uh, rotation into value, out of growth. I think we've seen that come back here a little bit recently. What I want to focus on is fixed income. I, I just find this to be a fascinating area because bonds are supposed to be the boring part of a portfolio, right? They're a a ballast, a diversifier, they they generate some income. But with all of these concerns over rising rates and inflation, I I do feel like this area seems to be causing a lot of heartburn and confusion for investors right now. And I think we're seeing that in the flows, as as you were alluding to. It's a little bit of a different picture than last year. And I I look at this, there's been a lot of talk about the death of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. There's this feeling that there's asymmetric risk to the downside to owning bonds right now, I think especially longer duration bonds. How do you view all this? Because again, I I think this might be the single most challenging aspect of portfolio construction right now.
3: Yeah, and and Nate, you're an advisor, I'm an advisor, this is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years for uh, the fixed income allocation and client portfolios. So I I think what we're seeing is this. First of all, the buildup of fixed income ETFs was very, very healthy in a declining rate environment. If you looked at the Barclays Ag, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. However, if we look at today and the hint of inflation, the possibility of rising interest rates, uh, investors and advisors are looking at the risk and saying, to many, it's not worth it. So many are taking their chips off the table and saying, uh, I'm just going to stay in the safety of money market funds. So we're seeing $5 trillion collectively in both retail and institutional money market funds today, a record number that we've never seen. And at the same time, advisors seem to be uh, pulling apart parts of the Barclays Ag that they're comfortable with, whether that be short duration. We're seeing a lot of interest in active Uh, fixed income on the short short duration side, but also we're looking at alternative income strategies kind of come to the surface and actually get a lot of attention too. And we can dig into that a bit. But your point about the 60-40 being dead Many are actually making that come true. Uh, our friends over at Wisdom Tree, you know, Jeremy Siegel and Jeremy Swartz and that whole team, they're saying that 75-25 is, is the new 60-40. And, and, and it very well may be. Uh, so we're going to have to be more creative going forward if we do see a, a time of rising rates for sure. But the great thing is, in the ETF landscape, we've got all the tools that we need to be able to enhance our portfolio, keep that fixed income portion safer, but also have some opportunity to grab some grab some additional yield.
2: Yeah, the biggest challenge from my perspective, if you want to just stay really conservative, to your point, you can park that fixed income portfolio in shorter duration, bond ETFs, money market funds, so on and so forth. Of course, given what the outlook Looks like moving forward, you're probably going to get a negative real return. That seems set in stone. And so to your point, there are these alternative income strategies that you can look to, whether we're talking about uh, REITs or MLPs, option overlay strategies. But to to me, the challenge is each of those have their own unique risk. I, I think some investors like to look to dividend paying stocks. And so, to me, that's going to be real interesting watching. Like, how do you calibrate risk in a portfolio in these alternative uh, income strategies?
3: Well, you're right. And and let's pick a few of them apart. For example, uh, the nationwide risk-managed income ETF, Newsy, it's getting almost an 8% yield with this options overlay strategy on the NASDAQ 100. Hey, if you're going to have a NASDAQ 100 allocation anyway, why not overlay some of that and get some income? Um, in MLPs, uh, the biggest MLP, ETF, AMLP, uh, 8% yield, boy, it's done really well coming out off of the lows of last year. Uh, here we are with oil uh, at 72 bucks a barrel. We're seeing gas up over 100% in the last year as well. The pipelines uh, are needed. Uh, with the infrastructure program, it 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 looks like it's going to get some uh, new coat of paint and some dusting off as well, which is which is great. Um, and if you feel like we're going to continue to see higher oil and gas prices, it's another way to diversify. And then finally, you mentioned dividends I was on with Chris Davis over at Davis Advisor th- this week. You know, they specialize in financials. He's so excited about, uh, banks and, and the financial sector and the dividends they kick off but most importantly banks are still in great shape and they're relatively cheap you know like a 14 PE compared to you know 25 in the S&P and in, in some of the communication stocks so kicking off great dividends and you know banks do really well in rising rate environments Tom,
2: you mentioned commodities a little bit. And earlier, you noted the, the negative flows for commodity ETFs overall, which I find interesting on several levels. I, I think, number one, commodities are often viewed as an inflation hedge. So I, I would have expected more flows just given some of the inflation concerns that are out there. And then two, you you, you look, I mean, they perform pretty well o- overall this year. There's been a, a little bit of a pullback here recently, but overall, pretty strong performance what do you think is going on underneath the surface here? Is this really gold ETFs overshadowing the positive flows
3: elsewhere? Because I know there have been negative flows out of something like GLD.
2: What, what do you think is going on?
3: It's interesting. Uh, I was on with uh, David Shazler yesterday from Van Eck talking about their real asset ETF, RAAX. And he had a good perspective. He did a lot of study and, and research on the history of inflationary times and what tends to happen is in the early stages when you see inflation people tend not to believe it and we've kind of seen that with flows even though areas like natural gas you know UNG and USO are up 36 and uh 50% respectively so th- so far this year and and, and we know what base, base metal prices lumber we know what agriculture has done People really don't believe it still. And he said this tends to happen where it takes a little bit to actually get people signing on board. And then finally, gold tends to be the pillar uh, during inflationary times. It's underperformed all other commodities in the last year, and we've actually seen some redemptions. So if you look, listen to David, he said, look, don't count this out. Compared to other inflationary times, we're just getting started, and if we will, we're going to see more flows. And the, the infrastructure program will be nothing but fuel for the fire because there's going to be a lot of demand for all those commodities as if this plant starts to uh, kick in.
2: No, it's a good perspective. And I, I went and pulled year-to-date flows from some of the ETFs that, that you just mentioned. So if we look at USO, that's actually had $2 billion in outflows this year. UNG, natural gas, $225 million in outflows GLD $7 billion in outflows. Now, if you look at something like the Invesco diversified commodity ETF ticker PDBC, that's up you know over 30 percent. That has had over 2 billion in inflows, but it's been again you know swamped by some of the outflows from other places. As it relates to gold, Tom, gold's a mystery to me. I've talked about this before on the podcast because. I wonder if crypto is now somehow altering gold's behavior, because, again, just given concerns around inflation, along with the fact that interest rates have actually come back in recently, I would have thought gold's performance would be a bit stronger at this point, which, of course, would then lead to gold ETF inflows. That's what typically happens. Any thoughts on this interplay between,
3: I don't know, Bitcoin or crypto at a broader level and gold? Do you think there's anything to that? It's a head-scratcher, Nate, for sure. Um, You know, one perspective may be if you look at all the other commodities, agriculture, energy, metals, these are real commodities that are needed and used and in very, very high demand, in many cases, uh, less of a supply. Gold itself, although it it has been the bellwether during inflationary times, uh, there's no evidence that there's been a greater demand for gold or especially you know, the need to utilize gold in this uh, opening up environment that we're seeing across the world. So that may be part of it. Your point regarding cryptocurrency, I I think that may be part of the case as well. We saw a lot of attention in the crypto marketplace. Uh, I had a blast going to Miami to the crypto conference, and it's real. This is not a fad. This is going to be something that will be with us for an extended period of time. Does that mean that crypto is going to be one of those bellwether or benchmarks in the future uh, during inflationary times. Time will tell, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you, gold's been a little bit under pressure. But back to what uh, David was saying at Eck, he said, geez, listen, what happens is gold tends to be a second half player. So during those inflationary times, it started off slow, but in the second half, it really kicked in. Let's see if he's right.
2: By the way, I would have loved to have gone to that Bitcoin conference in Miami. That looked like an absolute blast from everything that I saw (laughs) on social media. Uh, That that looked like the the conference of the year. Uh, It
3: was so fun, Nate. I'll tell you, uh, all these millionaires in shorts and T-shirts and long hair, uh, I was jealous.
2: (laughs) All right, Tom, uh, a, a few minutes left. Anything else standing out to you on flows or even just ETF performance? I mentioned ARC Invest at the top. I'm not sure if that story is intriguing to you at all, or if there's anything else that has your attention right now.
3: Yeah, well, well, really quickly, you and I are, are both uh, big fans of ETFs, and we've loved to see this ride. And when you look at coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets, and we're almost 10x that right now. The The great thing is, uh, there's so many choices for innovation, and when you think about innovation, you can't help, you know, think about what Kathy and the team over there at Ark have, have done. Yeah, they've had a bit of a pullback, but they're pretty open about having a five to seven year outlook on the stocks that they're buying. Uh, I I think when you th- when you think about the future, Fang stocks or you think about innovation you've got to look outside the major market indexes. And although we know most people have very high correlation on their equity portfolios to the S&P 500, they're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes and folks like Kathy Wood and, and her team and many other that are offering up innovative strategies, I think are going to help enhance our client's portfolio in the future.
2: It's funny because for all of the noise around ARK and Kathy Wood, you look at ARKK, that's now positive for the year. Now, yes, it's still trailing the S&P 500 by I, I don't know, 13 points or whatever, but you know, it crushed the S&P 500 last year. My my point is just given all of the uh the 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 negative media around it, you would have thought that this ETF is down like 30 or 40%. Um Tom, before I let you go, you mentioned uh infrastructure earlier when we were talking commodities. And an area that I've always appreciated your ability in is just the way you're able to, to look at the current news cycle and what's going on in the world and really think about that through the lens of ETFs. And to, to your point, one of the big stories we saw last week was it looks like we finally have some progress on an infrastructure plan, right? Long overdue, but it does look like there's a, a bipartisan agreement uh, in place, total spending package of over $1 trillion last I saw. Any quick thoughts on ETF impact here?
3: Yeah, it was fun watching Biden's uh, proposal and plan this week, and then as you're looking at ticker symbols and you're looking at the underlying, what, what jumped out at me is th- the rails, both public and private, uh, all of a sudden shot up, and they were almost most positively affected by this. Uh, the Global X U.S. Infrastructure ETF PAVE has a higher percentage in, in rails and actually did better that day. Some of the other ETFs, uh, the iShares Global Infrastructure IGF and FlexShares uh, NFRA, again, did well, but they're more global holdings. So I think if you're looking to profit from the infrastructure bill, look more domestically, number one, or look at some of the railroads you know, it's funny as we speak, I'm here at the Jersey Shore, and you can kind of hear one of the trains going by right now as they're bringing people to the beach. So so uh, the rails are something that are very near and dear to the president's heart. As he says, he's got over a million miles coming from Delaware to D.C. on a regular basis. So uh, I, I would say between Biden and Warren Buffett, uh, don't sell the rails short. <laughs>
2: Well, Tom, with that, we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> Fun chat this week, and, and so great to finally have you on the podcast.
3: Thank you so much, Nate. I appreciate it.
2: That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends.
3: Looking to invest
0: in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology in semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com S-O-X-Q. IBBQ and S-O-X-Q are NASDAQ listed.
1: Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. InvestCo Distributors, Inc.
2: My next guest is Laura Morrison, Global Head of Listings at SIBO Global Markets, who operates the fastest-growing primary listing venue for exchange-traded products in the U.S. They currently list about 500 products with over $400 billion in total assets. That's for more than 60 ETF issuers. They also have a very strong European presence, and Laura herself has deep expertise in the ETF space. I can't wait to hear what has her excited about ETFs right now. She's on the line with me from New York. Laura, a pleasure finally connecting. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks for having me, Nate. It's great to be on.
2: Okay, so there is a lot I want to ask you about ETFs and the overall industry. But let's start with your background and your your current role. So as I understand it, You started on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You then ultimately took over the ETF listing and trading business for NYSE ARCA. And now, of course, you uh, do head global listings at SIBO. Just talk a little bit about your uh, career journey, sort of the ETF career path, and ultimately how you did end up at uh, SIBO.
4: Oh, happy to. So I arrived in New York in 1993, which happened to be the same time that SPY launched, so the first ETF, while I was headed to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, I was watching closely what was happening across the graveyard at the American Stock Exchange and uh, found this new instrument to be really interesting. Now, granted, I worked for quite some time in the corporate listing space of the New York Stock Exchange, but when we, the NYSE had acquired Archipelago, I saw this as an opportunity to move into the ETF listings business. So had, um, enjoyed the growth of that business via acquisition. After um, a number of years there, I was tapped on the shoulder to come over to uh, build a listings business at a competing exchange. It was Bats at the time. And shortly after that, Sibo had acquired Bats. So now I proudly run the listings business here. You're right. We're just about ready to tick up to 500 listings in the U.S. We have over 80 listings in Europe, and that that business is growing tremendously. And um, with the soon to be acquired Chaiex Asia Pacific, we are also offering listings in the Australian market.
2: Okay, so for people who are unfamiliar with this, because I think for some people, they they look at the exchanges, it can be a little bit of a black box in terms of what goes on behind the scenes. Explain what SIBO does, and I would say specifically as it relates to ETFs.
4: Sure. We have a maniacal focus on ETFs making sure that they trade well. We need to make sure that the liquidity is available For the end investor to receive the best quality in terms of price discovery. So there's a lot of work that goes into bringing a new listing to market, and then once it's launched, working with the issuers to help deliver their message out to the end investor so they know that it's available to them for trading. Some of that sometimes happens naturally, others, it it's helpful to um you know utilize various different digital marketing or other other types of um of ways to reach that client so they're well aware of what this product does and and you know what to expect when they when they come to trade it.
2: Yeah, the way I describe this at the top of the podcast and, and maybe you can fill in the blanks or correct me if I'm wrong is that really you do focus on the entire ETF lifecycle, because you'll help drive that product and index development. Obviously, whatever the ETF holds has to be able to trade well, so on and so forth. You may work on the legal or the compliance or the regulatory side. I I actually want to ask you about a Bitcoin ETF a little bit later, because I know you're involved on the regulatory side there. Uh, Obviously, you, you handle the listing and Uh, You know, post launch support that you were alluding to in terms of marketing and and social media and distribution, you know, supporting ETF capital market teams, making sure things trade well. Is is all of that accurate? I mean, you you really can work from the the front end all the way to the back end, correct?
4: That's exactly it. That's right. And I would add on that the work that we do with the market makers, uh, being sure that, you know, our issuers know them well. Uh, The issuer will select a market maker to be that designated um, LMN, lead market maker, to be sure that the product is trading well. And it's essentially, you know, they pick them, we pay them. <laughs> so we'll, we provide uh, rebate structures that are unique and, and innovative to keep those market makers engaged and, and focused on every single ETF that they're assigned. So that's, a, that's also a very important component of our involvement in the ecosystem.
2: Yeah, and just at a very basic level, I always like to describe stuff just, you know, at a one-on-one level for, for, for topics that people may not be familiar with. I mean, what exactly does it mean to be a primary listing venue for an ETF? Like, what does that entail?
4: It To be that primary listing venue, we, we, we have a tremendous responsibility to make sure that, first of all, our technology is superior. <laughs> we are also very much very much focused on like i mentioned that that market quality mm-hmm. but you know making these products available for trading and also working within the parameters of reg nms in the in the us to be sure that for example if there's a tremendous amount of volatility in a product we've we've worked with the industry in order to put in if you will, guardrails. So limit up, limit down is what we refer to it as, but guardrails for every single security. So should there be a need to halt that security, and we prefer not to halt, but when there's a need to halt, it's done in an um, automatic way that allows for price to be prioritized over Time so there's there's a number of different um, responsibilities that that we take on as that primary listing venue, again to be sure that the end investor receives the best price possible that they they could they could obtain at the moment that their order comes into trade.
2: One thing I'm curious about I know Sibo itself has a, a, an unbelievable reputation for expertise in options and derivatives. Does that come into play at all when working with prospective ETF issuers who perhaps want to utilize those derivatives and underlying products? I I do feel like option strategies in particular are becoming much more popular in ETFs right now.
4: You're right. You're right. When I first started at um, SIBO, Bruce Bond gave me a call and said, I'd like to come meet you at your headquarters. We have an idea. And that really was uh, a defining moment, if you will. Um, It made sense for us to work together on his defined outcome products or, um, you know, First Trust and their target outcome products. So, yes, there's billions of dollars that have gone into these options-based products that provide a a buffer, if you will, or provide an an opportunity to hedge in essentially – An equity package so the the ETF so rather than going in and trading the options themselves you can do that in your equity account uh, with utilizing these ETFs and and SIBO with our Options Institute we we place a lot of attention and care and focus on education and that has also been very helpful to their clients as they're looking to find out more about how that underlying trades and, and how these products can be used so that they can you know, protect their upside or uh, more so their downside.
2: Yeah, I mean, I look at the innovator ETFs and the defined outcome ETFs overall, this has been one of the faster growing areas of ETFs and really a true success story over the past few years. And we are seeing other ETFs come to market that utilize option strategies. Again, this just looks like a segment of the market that's going to continue to expand. Um, Laura, with our remaining time, let's talk current and future state of ETFs. I'd love to hear what you think is coming down the pike, uh, perhaps challenges for the industry. Let's try to cover it all. And first, I'll just ask you, where do you think we are in the ETF life cycle, so to speak? So j- just in terms of industry growth, where are we?
4: I think we're in the second inning.
2: Wow. And, I really do. And, and why I is that?
4: Because the one thing that I'm really excited about is uh, the conversion of mutual funds to ETFs, or, or like what Fidelity did Um, with cloning a number of their successful ETFs. So there is a lot of interest post the launch of the semi-transparent, actively managed solutions that uh, took place like ActiveShares last year, and like I mentioned, Fidelity's solution, Invesco's solution, many, many of these Um, came to market where I refer to them as the next-generation mutual fund because they don't require the daily disclosure of the underlying holdings. So that's appealing to an active manager who wants to keep that information confidential. So so now, fast forward, not only do we have those solutions in place, but we're seeing – a lot of interest in a flat-out conversion. Um, Guinness Atkinson did it successfully, and and then just on June 14th, Dimensional converted you know almost 30 billion in assets in their four mutual funds to ETFs, and they're trading. It's really, it's really impressive. So the floodgates are open, and. People, you know, they're listening to their clients who are saying, we like your strategies, but we want to have them available in an ETF so we can take advantage of the opportunity to be able to trade it intraday or the tax tax efficiencies that come along with it. And in some instances, they're just less expensive. So I'm really excited about what's happening in in that space in particular. No, I, also, go ahead, yeah. I'm also particularly excited about where we're going to go in the U.S. with regard to a potential approval for a crypto product. That is something that you had noted earlier, Nate, that we spend a lot of time and attention working with the SEC in making sure that all the questions and concerns are answered from the SECs, those folks who are commenting on, on our filings. But essentially, we're working with a number of issuers to guide them through that process, and hopefully obtain an approval to list in the U.S. like it's been able to take place in many other jurisdictions around the world. So that is, that is both a challenge, but also you know, an exciting opportunity um, to be you know, the first exchange, hopefully, to be able to launch a product that provides exposure to an underlying cryptocurrency.
2: All right. Now you really have my interest peak. We're definitely going to talk a little bit more about the crypto Bitcoin uh, ETF angle. But I want to come back to what you were talking about with the mutual fund to ETF conversions and the uh, quote unquote non or semi transparent wrapper. So I 100% agree that the mutual fund ETF conversions are going to be an enormous growth uh, opportunity for the industry as a whole. I think we're going to see a lot more coming down the pike. I think that probably the biggest challenge here is just mutual funds that have distribution through traditional 401k plans and figuring out sort of the the, the mousetrap around that. But a question that I have for you, you mentioned the non or semi-transparent wrapper. And if I, I was understanding you correct, it's that now that this is available it, it perhaps makes these mutual fund ETF conversions more palatable to legacy mutual fund companies because they have this vehicle where they don't have to disclose daily. But, you know, I look at the interest that we've seen thus far just in terms of assets into the products that that use these semi-transparent wrapper, wrappers, and they really haven't been lighting the world on fire. So. I mean, do you expect interest to pick up here because of these, these ETF conversions? You, you know, I look at uh, DFA, for instance. They converted into the transparent ETF wrapper, right? They didn't use the non-transparent. Yes. Maybe not a great example, just given the way their investment methodology works, where, where they hang their hat. But I, it just feels like a slow start to me on the, on the non- or semi-transparent wrapper. I'd just be curious to get your thoughts around that. There, it, it,
4: there is a... Um there's a lot of interest, a lot of discussions behind the scenes. Um, Many, many asset managers are coming to us wanting to talk more about it, wanting to learn, wanting to understand, you know, what does it take to build a capital markets desk? There's, 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 while it does seem like it's somewhat of a slow start, it's, it's proven. So it's known to work. So it provides more options for these mutual fund companies who who are considering getting into the ETF business for the first time.
2: No, and again, I think it'll just be fascinating to watch because I think it's it's clearly an innovative uh, vehicle that's been developed. It just, I don't feel like the uptake has been maybe what people were expecting at this point. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, on the crypto topic, um, as you were mentioning, I know SIBO has sought approval from the SEC to list uh, several Bitcoin ETFs on the exchange I, I have to ask you. I mean, what has been your impression of the way the SEC has handled this entire process, and, and uh, where, where, where do you think it stands right now?
4: The it, it, everybody was waiting for Gary Gensler to to take his seat, and and now the information that's coming from the SEC is is helpful in guiding us through this project. I truly believe it's a it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. But I'm not as optimistic that an opportunity to list will happen in in this year. There's there's much work that needs to needs to get done relative to you know the regulatory process in this in this you know Bitcoin in particular and Ethereum. So, you know, we're we're continuing to work on this. We we have you know many issuers with a tremendous amount of expertise and the maturation of this industry has grown significantly since our first go around and the disapprovals that that happened back then in 2017, 2018. So we've progressed with it. It's proven to work well in other jurisdictions, like i would mentioned. So, you know, I'm still optimistic, but it's going to take a uh, lot of a lot of work and a lot of data gathering and 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 frankly um, engagement with with us with trading and markets, um, but then the other divisions of the SEC and the issuers as well as as we work through this process. Let, let me did ask you. The, yeah, go ahead. Did the first filing with with Vanek and the SEC is, if you will, on a clock in order to approve or disapprove and so essentially we'll know more in mid-november when that filing hits its final 240th day we'll know more as to what the positioning is for the sec i mean it's they could disapprove at that point or they could approve at that point um so that's the date that everybody's looking towards.
2: Let, let me ask you this, and I will absolutely give you a free pass if you don't want to answer this. I know SIBO has to work directly with the regulator. So I'm, I'm always very sensitive to that. But do you have any concerns about the ability of a Bitcoin ETF to trade properly? And, and I would say I'm guessing not since SIBO is supporting these efforts. But I mean, is there any insight that you can offer here or, or elaborate on that? Because it, it seems to me that these products would trade just fine.
4: Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and we've been looking at that Specifically, we've been tracking the movement of Bitcoin and what it would do within the ETF wrapper, pulling a tremendous amount of data. And getting back to what I mentioned, the guardrails, if you will, on limit up, limit down, we've discovered that actually it, it would work well within the current confines of, of the guardrails that are in place for ETFs. Um, the Bitcoin asset. So, you know, we don't see a significant amount of halting that would have taken place when we look back on all of the trading that's, that's taken place here to date. So, we do believe that the market mechanisms are well laid out and we're prepared along that front to uh, move forward with a listing when approved.
2: And you were alluding to this earlier, but if you had to venture a guess as to when the SEC might finally get comfortable with the Bitcoin ETF, it sounds like you're thinking maybe next year is more likely at this point.
4: Yeah, my sense is that additional regulation would need to be in place, maybe of the crypto exchanges themselves.
2: Okay. And and Laura, before I let you go, just to be balanced here, I think we've, we've done a little bit of cheerleading on the ETF space, which I always like to do. I, I know we're both really bullish on the future of ETFs. But wh- what do you view as the biggest challenge facing the ETF industry right now? If you had to pinpoint one thing that you think the, the industry as a whole could improve upon, what, what would that be?
4: I still think it remains distribution. There's a lot of options out there, like we we're saying we're about to list our five hundredth e t f There's a lot of options out there, and it's important that uh investors know exactly what they're what they're buying and and understand how that underlying asset class works so it's that distribution and education opportunity that we we work hard with our issuers to to um make sure that that we do the best that we can in in all aspects of it.
2: Well, Laura, really enjoyed connecting. Uh, We'll definitely have to do this again. Thank you for joining me.
4: Well, thank you, Nate. I sure appreciate the invitation. It's great chatting with you.
2: You as well. That was Laura Morrison, Global Head of Listings at SIBO Global Markets. I'm now joined by Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer of Valkyrie Investments. And Valkyrie's looking to be a new player in the world of ETFs. So they currently have two ETF filings with the SEC. One is a quote unquote physical Bitcoin ETF. And then the other is sort of a pick and axe play on Bitcoin. It's the Valkyrie Innovative Balance Sheet ETF which this would hold companies with exposure to Bitcoin or operating in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And Valkyrie also offers several private trusts holding various crypto assets as well. Uh, Let's now bring in Stephen, who's on the line with me from Nashville. Stephen, welcome to the podcast.
5: Hey, thanks for having me, Nate.
2: All right, so really interesting timing here Because last week, the SEC delayed its decision on the Valkyrie Bitcoin ETF. So this was originally filed back in January. And then the New York Stock Exchange, they filed a Form 19B4 in April, which that officially put the SEC on the clock. I believe the next SEC checkpoint or decision point is on August 10th so let's just dive right in. What can you tell us about your conversations with the SEC? Uh, what seems to be the primary holdup? How are you feeling about everything?
5: Yeah, uh, no, thanks for asking uh, I, i'm actually feeling I'm feeling pretty good about these applications, and uh, this really is no fault of the SEC. Um, there was you know just a change in um, in, in administration uh, from from one president to another and and a, and a change in the uh, chair of the SEC. So, so Ginsler has a pretty big job ahead of him uh, following the last year of, of what some people are calling a bubble. Some people are calling asset price appreciation, whether it's in the stock market or, or cryptocurrencies or, or other types of commodities um, uh, after uh, a round of money printing by the United States. So there's a, there's a lot that the SEC has to address at the moment. Um, I, think, I think Bitcoin is lower on their list, but uh, it's, it's certainly a feature. Uh, I think the top two things that are on their list are meme stocks, uh, like you know, GameStop and, uh, and AMC Theatres and, uh, and other types of meme stocks like that, and how do they address those issues, as well as SPACs. Uh, there was, you know, SPACs have been really hot for the last year. And, um, you know, it's uh, certainly high high on their list of priorities uh, to address before letting something else into the market that they have to deal with.
2: Well, that's a really interesting take because I feel like a lot of the discussion around why the SEC is delaying this decision concerns, you know, fraud and manipulation in the underlying markets, or it really gets into the technical aspect. And, and certainly they may still need to address those. But if, it, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you think maybe this just simply fell down the SEC's priority list with everything else going on. I mean, is that an accurate characterization?
5: Yeah, I, I, I truly believe that is. It's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you're, uh, uh, you know, repairing a highway and you're down the two lanes and there's a, and there's a, and there's a car accident. Uh, you know, what, what, do you, what do you deal with first, right? So uh, you, you've got to deal with the car accident, and you can get back to uh, fixing the road. Um, and, and you know, and, and the Bitcoin ETF is just one of those things where, you know, I, I believe they're, they're not letting it in, so it's not one more thing they have to deal with until they uh, address these other issues.
2: And that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, if it did fall down the priority list. Let me ask you this. I saw a couple of months ago in Coindesk, where you said a Bitcoin ETF was something you've wanted to do for five years now, but it wasn't until recently that you believed the SEC would probably approve a Bitcoin ETF. I, I'm just curious, what gave you that optimism?
5: Yeah, so, you know, I actually, um, you know, prior to, to getting into uh, cryptocurrencies uh, as, a, as an asset class for asset management, um, I spent a lot of time on, you know, in, in, in private equity and, and fixed income, And in particularly, um, spent a lot of time launching ETFs. And I remember back in 2010, 2011, uh, I was at Guggenheim and we were launching some pretty innovative ETFs based on some esoteric strategies that we were running for private clients and and other institutions. And we were doing things that we thought were, you know, kind of no-brainers, kind of simple you know, they definitely weren't plain vanilla, but they were simple products. And one of them was a actively managed investment grade bond ETF. And it took five years to get that approved by the SEC. Now, some of the reasons and some of the things that we had to concede on was we wanted to include a lot of, uh, you know, double A, triple A asset backed securities um, that were mostly in the industrial side of things backed by things like aircraft and container ships and Towers. And we always thought of those as, as pretty safe investments. Uh, they, they all held up during the financial crisis. Uh, they, they didn't have the same fate as mortgage-backed securities. Um, they, they held up better than a lot of uh, corporate bonds. Um, and, but we had to concede on a lot of things that were, you know, you know esoteric in nature. And and after five years, uh, you know, we, we finally got approved something that not only was actively managed, but also had the ability to hold a certain amount of, of, of more esoteric, uh, you know, high quality fixed income credit. So given that experience, I just, uh, you know, I know that uh, it, these things take a lot of time and from the w- original Winklevoss filing of ETFs, um, you know, I thought it could take, you know, five, seven, maybe even 10 years to get uh, an ETF approved. There's, there's a, a long period of time where there's an educational process with the staff, uh, with, with general financial markets, uh, the asset, self, uh, asset class itself had to grow. And in the last year, Bitcoin has grown tremendously as an asset class. It used to behave like, you know, more like a, um, you know, a micro cap, you know, equity, which aren't very suitable for ETFs given their, um, you know, low volume, uh, low market cap, uh, to something that, that acts more like a, a global, um, uh, currency, or even you know, more of a, a, a large cap uh, equity, as far as the volume and, and, and size and the number of people that are trading it and holding it. Uh, so, so, th- so that was that was one feature. The second one was custody. And custody was always an issue that was addressed by the staff of the SEC. And and custody, you know, there there used to be stories over the last you know eight years of of an exchange being hacked or. Or some small uh, custody solution that the founder ran off with the private keys and disappeared and never returned, and and really in the last year also you've had a couple of very legitimate uh, secure uh, uh, you know custody options that have become available. Uh, you have Gemini, you have Coinbase, and between those two, you know they act, they they look and feel and act like a legitimate custody solution that you're that you're used to on Wall Street. And they have security features, uh, nobody's running off with your money. Uh they have insurance, uh they're SOC compliant. Um so so you know these, these security features within these exchanges and the legitimacy of these exchanges uh is also a feature that added to confidence around you know where the crypto is going to be held if it's held somewhere. Uh, so, so these are the, the you know the two main things that happen: size of the market and and security, and legitimacy of the uh, custody
2: solutions. Stephen, I thought all of that was extremely well said, and I I love the uh, bond ETF a- anecdote. And I do know that these things can certainly take some time, though. I would say we are you know now eight years after the first Bitcoin ETF filing. I guess from my perspective, what I have a, a bit of a hard time reconciling is we now have several Bitcoin ETFs trading in Canada. All of those seem to be working just fine and and actually pretty popular so far. You look over to Europe, they have something like two dozen Bitcoin ETPs that are trading with no issues that I'm aware of. Uh, We have a robust Bitcoin futures market, right? Both cash settled and physically settled, Uh, which, by the way, I always point out, those futures were approved by the CFTC, another government agency, just saying. Uh, And then you look at some of the products that retail investors can get their hands on right now. So these private trusts, which trade over the counter, and they can trade at fairly meaningful premiums or discounts, which investors may not always be aware of. Uh, We have a company like MicroStrategy, who, regardless of what you think of them, they are levering up their balance sheet and, you know, sort of turning themselves into a Bitcoin ETF proxy, which, of course, any retail investor can get their hands on. I'm just curious, how do you reconcile all of that with the SEC's current positioning? I hear you in terms of where this may fall on the priority list, but we're now eight, you know, years into this. And you can look to some other markets. You can even look to the Bitcoin futures market. Like, why can't we have a Bitcoin futures ETF? The CFTC has approved these things.
5: Yeah, Exactly. Well, and when we filed for this ETF back in January, um, let let, let me even back up further. When we were getting ready to file back in, you know, between, you know, uh, October and December of last year, uh, during that period of time, we thought, you know, we're we're probably one or two more years out, um, you know, probably closer to two years out. And then by the time we filed in January and we saw what was happening in the market with micro strategies and. And, and and some of these Canadian pro- uh, products starting to get approved, you know, we we believe that that timeline may have been pushed to uh, to six to nine months. You know, we we thought we might see something this year, uh, and and all of these things have happened very quickly. So uh, so 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 obviously you have the grayscale product that's been out there forever, uh, but uh, you you do have uh, Canadian ETFs that were just recently approved. By the way, you can buy those Canadian ETFs in the U.S. Right? You can you can you can go through a, a U.S. online brokerage account uh, and purchase Canadian ETFs, and and that's actually to me that's the, the, the biggest issue in, as far as timing goes, is we're we're making com- Canadian companies more competitive than U.S. companies that want to offer the same product, uh, given that uh, they're allowed to backdoor through uh, U.S. exchanges and nobody's saying anything. Uh, so I, you know, I, I do think, you know, from from our side of things, from the business side, we see a sense of urgency, of you know, let's you know, let's let U.S. companies be uh, be competitive against uh, uh, non-U.S. companies when they're selling to the same market.
2: Well, I guess. Um, well, I'll add to that. I mean, I think that, and I've said this before, that the SEC, you make a great point on on U.S. investors maybe accessing Canadian ETFs and, and giving them a competitive advantage there. But I've said the SEC is essentially forcing U.S. ETF issuers to get creative and develop workaround products, right? Because issuers know investors want exposure to the price of Bitcoin in an ETF wrapper. And if the SEC won't approve a pure Bitcoin ETF, then issuers are going to look at other options, which makes perfect sense to me. And I I would just say on that note, I know back in March, Valkyrie did file for this innovative balance sheet ETF, which, as I mentioned, this would hold companies with exposure to Bitcoin uh, or operating in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So this could be companies with Bitcoin on their balance sheets, miners, trading platforms, etc. I guess I'll just ask you point blank. Would you have filed for that ETF if the SEC had already approved a Bitcoin ETF?
5: No, we wouldn't have, um, <laughs> you know, we, 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 thought that it would, you know, when, when we, we, we were coming up with that idea for, 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 Bitcoin on the balance sheet is what we originally called, what we're calling it. Uh, we were coming up with the idea at the same time that we were filing for our uh, Bitcoin ETF. And with the idea that it might take two years for the Bitcoin ETF or hopefully less uh, that we could uh, get a proxy product out there. And at the time, by the way, the, the you know the model that we were running for for something like that. There's really only six companies that it, 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 it could hold. You know, and this was this was back in you know January of this year. Uh, you know, Macro Strategies just, just started buying uh, Bitcoin. There were rumors that Tesla was doing the same, and there were about you know maybe maybe four other companies that were legitimately doing it. And we were coming up with creative ways of of modeling out. Well, you know this coin. You know this company does transactions in Bitcoin, even though it's really small or um but but now uh by the you know since we filed that you know and again the expectation was that many more companies would be uh, adding bitcoin to the balance sheet as a uh as a currency hedge and um you know six months later sure enough uh we have a much wider universe to choose from and, and, and by the way that 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 strategy even though we may not have filed it uh when we did if there had been a bitcoin etf uh it's actually quite attractive to people right because uh, if you have a strategy that has a you know somewhat high correlation to bitcoin without having to actually hold bitcoin and you have the the underlying being you know equities of, of, of companies that are you know um that have real revenue real, real real income real assets uh that are publicly traded you know you know meeting the large cap companies um it's it's, it's a good it's, it's a good insurance on the price of bitcoin as well uh, as well as getting the upside, so, uh, so, 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 but, but you're right. We we would have never we would have never done that had there been a Bitcoin ETF.
2: Stephen, only about a, a minute left here. Um, let's just say the SEC does finally get comfortable with a Bitcoin ETF and and they're ready to move forward. Well, you, you look, we now have a bunch of Bitcoin ETF filings out there. We we saw another one yesterday. Um, I'm curious, how do you think the SEC should go about approving these, just in terms of? should be approved first uh, what would be most fair
5: yeah um i mean i mean there, there, i'm obviously biased because um, I, I think that we put a lot of time and energy into into our filing and uh and, and tried um to very thoroughly answer the outstanding questions that the staff had had on other applications uh through the 19 before filing Um, but, uh, look, I, you know, I, I, I think the best way to, to approach it is, you know, first come first serve, um, you know, uh, the ones that filed first that have been very diligent in answering questions, very diligent in following the 19 before, um, you know, I think that's, that's probably how the order should be, you know, so you're probably talking Van Ack and us and then, and then with some tree down the road. Um, and, then, and then everybody else is kind of a group later. But uh, who, who knows how, how, how the uh, staff will actually approach it by the time uh, something gets
2: approved. And before I let you go, do you want to venture any sort of guess as to when a Bitcoin ETF might be approved?
5: You know, at, at, at this point in time, I'm, I am guessing uh, the end of Q1 of 2020. Uh, sorry, 2022. Um, but, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully it's sooner.
2: Well, Stephen, excellent stuff this week. I really appreciate the candidness. Uh, best of luck on the Bitcoin ETF. I do want to mention to listeners that Valkyrie does offer those private trusts. So they have a Bitcoin trust that has a 40 basis point fee, which that's the least expensive option on the market. And then Valkyrie also offers a Polkadot trust and an Algorand trust. So uh, note those are all only available to accredited uh, investors. But Stephen, thank you for joining me this week.
5: Yeah, Thank you so much for having me.
2: That was Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer at Valkyrie Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Jeracy, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Eric Irvin, CEO of BlockForce Capital and co founder of OnRamp Invest. We'll talk all about what he's currently building and get his thoughts on the recent swoon in crypto. And then Darren Sharinga, CEO and founder of Asymmetric ETFs, will spotlight the Asymmetric 500 ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.